Good morning. Is Pastor Jeff back yet? No. I'll wait a few moments. He's far at night. No, I'm just kidding. He always likes to tease me. I think he knows I can take it, but, you know, sometimes it really hurts. It's Father's Day. I thought he'd give me a break, but nope. Not today. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here to worship God with you again. It's always a delight and a pleasure to come and to preach God's Word to you. I bring greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church. There he comes. Yep. Clip this thing on my back so I don't have weird crackling like I normally do. I actually put it on the right, the left ear, which is the right ear. Okay? It's confusion for an Irishman. Okay, but no matter. It's always good to be with you to preach God's Word. I bring greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church. You are always in much favor and in our prayers at Emmanuel. We pray for you guys often, for Eric and for the rest of the pastors, and for you as a congregation. There are some new faces here that I haven't seen before. It's been quite a while since you've had a look at my ugly mug, but here I am again. I must be doing something right, or else there's no one else to come, but no matter. So, Pastor Jeff kind of has stolen all of my thunder. He read 34 and 35 to start with, and then he decided to keep reading past 28, but no matter, it's okay. If you have your Bible still open, please go back to verse 28, and I'll pick up there. We'll see who reads it better. You can use your little blue slips to cast your vote and put it in the box at the back. This is the Word of God. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and amongst, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my very reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray before we open up this rich passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Our loving, eternal, heavenly Father, we still our hearts and our minds now as we come to the proclamation of your holy word. We do thank you so much for the book of Daniel. It's a book, dear Lord, that at times we read, as it were, as Sunday school lessons and as stories that we can teach our kids. But yet, in amongst it is so much truth. There are so many things that we as believers in this day need to hear and need to put right before you, our great God. This morning, even as we've read of the demise of Nebuchadnezzar at your hand, yet in your kindness you were faithful to bring that man to see his need of you. He looked to heaven, and he saw you as the one true and the living God. This morning we pray that some people sitting here would do the very same thing, that you would have them lift their eyes to heaven, that they would cry on to you and ask, what must I do to be saved? And dear Lord, in your kindness, we pray that you would save their souls. For those of us who are believers, let us be encouraged this morning by your word. Help us at times to be rebuked by it. But in all that we do through our singing, through our reading, even later on as we take the communion, may we do it all to your glory and for your praise. And it's through your gracious Son that we ask these things. Amen. I got new glasses and didn't realize that, whoa, I can't even read my thing. So, sorry. It's okay. We'll be fine. For over two decades, a defiant proud, okay, so if you haven't picked up the theme of what today is, it's pride. What a better Father Day's address to give than that of pride. Sorry, fathers. Sorry, men. I'm preaching it to myself first and then to you. But you women are susceptible to it too, so don't think you can sit there and sleep and turn off. Okay? For two decades, a defiant man by the name of Napoleon created turmoil in Europe. Despite his small stature, only five foot two, so if you're five foot two, you're classed as that height of Napoleon, okay? It's kind of down there somewhere. He caused great trouble. And he caused great trouble to all the people who were around him. In a bid to regain some sort of power, because he had been exiled, Napoleon led his army in a swath of devastation across the battlefields of Europe. On June 18th, 
Napoleon and his armies faced the allied armies of England, Prussia, Russia, Austria, Belgium, and the Netherlands, or Holland as we call it, led by the Duke of Wellington. Before the battle commenced, Napoleon said these words. He looked to his commanding officer and he said this. We will put the infantry here, the cavalry over here, and the artillery in that spot. At the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. His commanding officer turned round, probably with shock in his face, turned round and responded, Napoleon, we must never forget that man proposes and God disposes. Five foot two, arrogant little Frenchman. Whew! The hair in the back of his neck stood up. He was not a happy camper. Napoleon replied, probably really quickly, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon prospers and Napoleon disposes. What a cocky little man he was. But he was soon to realize a very sore truth. From that very moment, from those words left Napoleon's lips, Waterloo was lost. God sent rain. It rains a lot in Europe. He sent a little bit extra. It rained so much that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as had planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon, not Wellington, who was defeated. And it was France who was at the feet of England. Pride. Pride is a ruthless taskmaster. It will convince us that we have indeed all the answers. And sadly, it will even convince us as Christians that we may even know more answers than what God does. What a scary place to be. The passage that we've read today gives us the testimony of a man who had to learn a very hard lesson. A lesson about his sin. A lesson about his pride. And a lesson that he would never ever forget. In these verses that we read in Daniel chapter 4, and indeed all that's leading up to this from Daniel 1 to here, 4 and 28 is a climax. All these things, all of them. Today we're going to see the journey of Nebuchadnezzar from sin to salvation in God. This message will show us how, at that time, the most powerful man in all of the day was made prisoner by God. And that very day, the nation of Babylon was placed at heaven's feet, not the other way around. You see, we will see this morning how God works in mysterious ways. It has to be said it's mysterious, but He works. And who are we to stand in God's way? And so this morning we'll look at chapter 4 in somewhat of a different way than we normally would. We all know this 
story or lesson that we've all read, but we're going to flip-flop it. We're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar before, before chapter 4, so we're going to go from 1 right up to here. We're then going to skip out the whole vision and go to the end of chapter 4, but then we're going to go back and see what got him there. What got Nebuchadnezzar from before to after and then finally, we're going to have two lessons that all of us, each and every one of us, doesn't matter who you are, needs to understand this morning. So first of all, Nebuchadnezzar before the events of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, does everyone know who he is? Would you ever name your child that name? Why not? Put it like this, when you go to type up your sermon notes, it's the one that's always squiggly red underneath. <laughs> Still don't know how to spell it to this day. But Nebuchadnezzar was the most feared and mighty ruler of his day. Okay, There was no one like Nebuchadnezzar. I was going to say he's like someone, but I'm not. Because actually there was no one like Nebuchadnezzar. He had control of that mighty kingdom of Babylon. He was unrivaled in his power and in his military might. But listen to this. The Bible clearly states that Nebuchadnezzar was where he was because of the will of God. Jeremiah records the words in Jeremiah 43.10 where Nebuchadnezzar is called my servant. My servant. He enjoyed the pinnacle and success of his power because of one person, not himself, but God. God had allowed him to be in that place of power and in that place of influence. Now, there is no such thing as a self-made man. Any success that we enjoy in this life, and indeed any sadness that we face in this life, are indeed the result of the sovereign will of God for us. Without God, we would still be lost. We would not be meeting here this morning if God was not here and God was not the God of the Bible. We would all be sinners and we'd still be on our way to hell. You see, how often we are men, very quick to pat ourselves on the back when we do something good. When we accomplish something, okay, prime example, I'm the guinea pig. Yesterday, I built my kids a shed, okay? We went to West Sack to a friend of mine. He gave us a free shed. We brought it home. I put it together. What a guy I am. Wow, good job, Murph. Patting yourself in the back. I had prepared this message all week. All week, not once did I thank God for giving me these to put it together. Shame on me. Pride in that very small instance had got a hold of me. May the Lord help us. May the Lord give us grace to understand that everything good that we do comes from Him and Him alone. It's nothing in any one of you. You're all fine people. 
but it's all of God. You see, even though Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king, he failed to recognize or acknowledge that God was in his life. He even took the very vessels, okay? The very vessels that were in the temple in Jerusalem, he took them. And he brought them back to Babylon. And he just didn't stick them in a box and shove them in his garage. No, he used them in his own worshiping of his own gods. He took what was holy and he defiled it. He had no idea that God was in his life. Chapter 1, remember? It's what he did. Here is a man who is living independently from God. He cares nothing of the will of God in his life. But sadly, this morning, this place is not packed, is it? Did all of Roseville come to worship God here? There's a lot of empty gray chairs. There's a lot of space in the car park. You see, literally of billions of people on this planet this morning, yes, they possess physical life. Yes, they possess clarity of thought. And they have some sort of reasonable intelligence. But they're as dead to the things of God as if they were already in the grave. How do I say that? Is that Merv's words? Who knew? I wouldn't dare say those words. God did. Ephesians 2, 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, by nature, children's of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are literally billions of millions of people like this. Dead. They don't care about God. They don't care of the things of God. They are living, as it were, separate from the will of God as they think. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar shows us once again that he is pagan. He is such a pagan man. When you read, when you actually take and read Daniel 1 through the end of Daniel 4, it astounds you. We see him in chapter 2, as it were, in the worst possible light. He's troubled. He's angry. He's got absolutely no compassion. His fury and his anger made him cry out that if he didn't get the interpretation of the dream, what was he going to do? Can anyone remember? How was he going to kill him? Wow. My sermon was really good. How was, he going to, how was he going to kill them? He was going to rip them limb from limb. Remember? Limb from limb. Not just a simple cut in the throat, stabbing them in the heart. Limb from limb. This was no... This man was nuts, okay? He was crazy. He was... Yeah. And then we know, or I hope we do, if you were listening, that Daniel steps up and what does he do does he give himself a pat on the back and said i'm the boy i got it for you no he gives god all the glory he tells the earthly king that a heavenly king has given the interpretation of the dream and he tells him in no uncertain terms 
that his kingdom won't last forever. It's going to be given away time and time and time again. But at the very end, the last kingdom, the last kingdom, it'll never pass away. And so what these pagan counselors could never see is revealed to a godly Daniel. It's, it's given to that godly Daniel in response to what? His getting on his knees and his praying to his God. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in chapter 2, is brought to see that his own religion is not nothing. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 47. If you still have your Bibles open. Look what he says. Okay, he's had the dream given to him. He's thought, great. It's pretty good. It's a good dream, good interpretation. Then he falls on his face and he pays homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an, office, that an offering and incense be burnt to him. And then look what he says. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Your God, not my God, your God. You see, if we were to read that and miss that your God, we'd be very foolish. We might think, oh, he's seen the light. He sees how wicked he is. He sees how bad he is. Great, he's turned the corner, as we would say. No. Because our Bible doesn't end at Daniel 2. Daniel 3. How fickle this man really is. And how quickly he is to forget. Same could be said of us. Very often something which seems immensely important that just wraps us up in the moment can very quickly fade into something that's very insignificant. Same goes for Nebuchadnezzar. Because in chapter 3, he doesn't erect a statue to a god, the god, even though he shouldn't have. He erects a statue of himself. I don't know how more prideful you can be. You see, he erects that statue and he worships himself. Chapter 2, he's saying, truly, you're God. He's not my God. I'm still my God. Nebuchadnezzar's pride has, an, as it were, camped in. Such a wicked man. But you see, we might sit there and go, well, Nebuchadnezzar's a bad fella. I'm not that bad. You see, there are many people today who hear the gospel call. You will hear it today. You've heard it many, many times. I listen to your sermons. So don't think I don't listen, because I care. And you have a very faithful pastor. And each week that man brings forth the gospel. Faithfully. Each and every week. But you see, some people, they'll hear that gospel message. And they'll hear the truth. And it'll take, as it were, that pr profound impression upon them. And it grips them and it excites them. 
but yet there's still that little thing inside them that just doesn't want these things to be true. And very often after a few weeks from going all excited and being gripped by these things, after a few weeks they're dragging their heels. And they live their lives as if that truth that once excited them, it simply can't be true. And sadly, sadly, they give no place to it all in their lives anymore. We know many people like that. I do anyway. You see, this was Nebuchadnezzar. And this is some of you this morning. Are you like that person who goes away on their holidays and find out that their hotel or their house that you've hired or that you've rented or that you're staying in is right next to this industrial steam hammer? And that industrial steam hammer functions 24 hours a day. Boom, boom, boom. And it keeps hammering. And during the first night, you can't sleep a wink. Okay? You're sitting there, you're lying there. Why did I ever book this place? And the sound of it's like thunder. It shakes the very bed you're sleeping on. The next night, you hear the same noise. Still the same, same loud rumbling. But you're able to doze off for a few seconds. And then you wake up again. Within the week, within the week, you're sleeping most of the night. And at the very end of the holiday, you sleep as sound as the people who have lived in the village nearby have all their lives. What kept you awake has now no profound impression upon you. It's as if there's no noise at all. Not some of you sitting here this morning. You've heard the gospel. You've heard Christ's name. And sadly, now you've suppressed it so much that there's no effect upon your life. It's as if you've hit the mute button. My lips are moving, but it's as if it's going in one ear and straight out the other. This morning, hear, listen. Do not be like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 to 3, but be like him in chapter 4. You see, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 was so deaf to these things, was so blinded to God that he took three servants of God and he threw them in a fire because he was so mad. He was so furious that he took three chosen vessels of the Lord and as what he thought, he was going to kill them. But yet he sees them alive. And he sees them walking about in the fire. And yet again, what do we find in chapter 3, verses 28 to 29? Turn there. It's still open in your Bible. If your Bible's still open. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him 
and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. It seems as if his eyes are opened a little bit more, but then they're closed. There's no indication at this point of Nebuchadnezzar bowing the knee to God. No, he sets up the decree for your God, not his God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't put his own name in there, does he? In his heart, in his heart, he was as stubborn as he was in Daniel 1. But you see, the story of Nebuchadnezzar should not bring fear. It should not make us distraught in any way. In fact, it should bring us to see how great a God we have. How long-suffering our great God is. You see, look at this prideful, arrogant, obnoxious king. He was so obnoxious. In chapter 1, God spoke to him indirectly. In chapter 2, he spoke to him directly through that dream. In chapter 3, he showed up in the fire. And now in chapter 4, he's going to kick the door clean off the hinges. He's going to get Nebuchadnezzar. Praise God for his long-suffering. Praise God for his long-suffering towards you. How many times did you hear the gospel message? Not once, not twice, countless. And yet God in his mercy still brought you back to hear it. After one time, he could, as it were, let you go and never hear it again. But in his kindness, he kept bringing forth that message to you. And so as we've gone through one to three, it brings us up to the second point that we're going to look at. Nebuchadnezzar after the events of chapter 4. This is where people are like, what? We're skipping out the whole dream? Yep, there's a reason. Obviously, chapter 4 was written after the events. Okay, You can't write it while it's happening. It happened, and then you write it down. So that is why chapter 4 starts the way it does. Okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. If we were to hit pause there, we'd think, oh, here he goes again. He hasn't learned one thing, okay? This chapter opens as the way most verses in 1 to 3 did. It's a proclamation. It's a typical kingly royal statement. Nebuchadnezzar decrees that he is king, He's king over all peoples. He's making sure that everyone knows, hey, look, I'm still the boy in charge. He's over all your languages. We know that from chapter 1. He's over their food. He's over our minds. And we might begin to think, wow, this proud, arrogant man is about to spurt more pride and arrogance. But no. Thankfully, there's a full stop at the end of 1. Verse 1. Look at verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of who? 
not myself, not me, King Nebuchadnezzar, the great boy that I am. No, that the Most High God has done, not for you, not for anyone else, as he normally said, but for me. What hope there is in that verse. I hope you really understand how important that last word is for me. Daniel 1 through 3 was all about you. Daniel didn't care about, or Nebuchadnezzar didn't care about himself. He praised the God of you. He praised the God of someone else. He praised the God of this person over here. It was never personal. Daniel 4 verse 2 couldn't get any more personal. It's of me. God has done a work in his heart. God has shown him his statutes and how great a God that he is. Verse 2 plainly with no hesitation declares that God has worked in his life. You see, the Hebrew word sign or wonder here means miraculous event. It's not some, you know, hocus pocus thing. It's not some little small insecure thing. It was a miraculous event. God has worked in my life and has done a miraculous thing and it has, it has had wonderful effects. Look at verse 3. It doesn't even stop in 2. It keeps going. You're thinking, wow, who is this guy? What's happening? Verse 3 says, How great are his signs? Not mine, but his. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, if that doesn't make you stop and wonder, who's he talking about? Wow. What has happened to this man? The man that the previous chapters was going to rip you limb from limb is now turned around and saying that, oh no, it's not my kingdom that's going to last forever. It's his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And his dominion, not mine, not my dynasty, not my kids that's going to rule everything. His dominion endures from generation to generation. What a God we worship. We are aware that the king knew the truth. We are aware that he had come to acknowledge it. But finally, finally we are beginning to see the most proud, arrogant, obnoxious man in all of the world, as it were, creak. See this thing? See this knee? The older you get, the worse it gets. It's harder to get down. It's harder to get up. But we see this king begin to bend his knee to the king of kings. Before, what did he do? He straightened his back and he puffed out his chest. Pride run through his very veins. Now, humility is what banners this man. Why? We'll see in a moment. He no longer talks of God in comparison with other gods. For a pagan king, that's got to be so foreign to him. He acknowledges the eternal kingdom, that it will last from generation to generation. If you were the most mightiest man in all of the world, all that you would care about is what's coming after you. Is my kingdom good? Is what's coming after me good? At this point, he doesn't really care. All he cares about is the fact that an eternal kingdom will last forever and ever. You see, a great change has come over this man. 
Look at verse 34. Verse 34 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Is he worshiping his big idol that he made? Is he worshiping all that gold that he had tucked away? Is he worshiping his huge temple that he had and his big throne? No. He's worshiping the Most High. He's worshiping God, your God, my God. But look, there's more. Verse 34 tells us that all the nations of the earth are as counted as nothing. All the nations, there is nothing. Understand this, that when the Lord returns, what's going to happen? It's all going to burn. Nebuchadnezzar understood that. All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing. Everything that we see will get burned up. What does that tell us? Don't make your treasure here. We're moth and rust. And if you live in Ireland, you'll know a lot about rust. You guys have no idea what rust is. Seriously, you have no idea. I saw a spot in my mountain bike yesterday and went, What? I live in California. It's not supposed to rust here. It does, weirdly. But in Ireland, our cars only last about five years. Why? Because they rust. Why? Because it rains a lot. Okay, so be thankful your stuff doesn't rust. But you have a lot of moths. So you can't get out of it. So all those fancy clothes that you wear, yeah, the moths will eat them. The rust doesn't get your car that you take pride in. The moths will eat your clothes that you take pride in. Either way, don't have pride. Okay? Verse 36. We see the insignificance of man and we see truly the power of God. This chapter, man, it's so good. We see that no one, absolutely no one can resist God. And no one will ever ask that question, what have you done? All those who walk in pride. So take note. If you're sitting there this morning and you know you're a prideful person, I'm standing here and I know that pride is a huge sin in my life. And I will confess that before you. I won't do it. But I normally would have, but not today. If I was to say, who suffers with pride in the room, raise your hand. I guarantee you every hand would go up. And if it didn't, I would walk down and put it up for you. <laughs> every single person sitting in this room and Veritas this morning deals with pride. From the youngest, ginger-haired Gribbon, who's my son, who deals with pride when I call him out on things and he puts his head down, to the oldest person sitting here, we all deal with pride. But look what happens at the end of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer 
prideful, but he's humble. He bows his knee. He looks to heaven and he gets on his knee and he understands who the one true and living God is. See, this chapter ends with the king worshiping God. He is a man, as it were, lying prostrate before God. He's no longer standing on his feet with his chest puffed out. He's lying, as it were, his nose that much off the ground before a holy God. The king is a changed man. He's different. He's been converted. Thank God that there is such a thing as conversion. The person who was one thing, wicked and vile and sinful, now has spiritual life and humility and humbleness. But what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What made him go from this proud, arrogant, cocky man to this man who looks to heaven and, as it were, lies prostrate before a holy God? What got him there? Well, thirdly, let's look at the events of chapter 4. Time would not allow, nor do I think you want me to go verse by verse. I had thought of it, but no way. Okay, you'd be here and your dinner would be burnt. The dinner in the crock pot would be well done. Okay, but I want us this morning to look at two main themes that run through the narrative. Firstly, we need to see that this king's conversion came from God. This man was converted by not himself, not all his Chaldeans, not by the bagpipes that they played in chapter 3. No, this man's conversion was of God and God alone. You see, in verse 4 and 5, we see the king doing, he's doing very well for himself. Everything, as it were, is going swimmingly. There was no wars. There's no rumors of wars. There's peace. King was enjoying life. He's kicking his feet back. He's probably at the pool going, wow, what a great man I am. This is awesome. And he prayed. But there was now an even bigger but. Okay, there's the but. Okay, remember to read your Bible and look for those. B-U-T, but. God sent him one more dream. He's sleeping. He's troubled. And he wakes up, and what is he, what is he again? He's fearful. <laughs> the most powerful man in all the world is scared of a dream, but with good reason. He becomes troubled. What does he do? Sends for those guyos again that come and haven't a clue what, that, what is going on. Why he sends them, I have no idea. See, he doesn't learn his lessons. If Daniel had told you the dream, what would you have done? You'd have told him to come first. No. But, or He does it again. Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing over again. The rumors start to fly around. Oh, here we go. The king, he's had another dream. That's it. Limbs are off. We're dead. Okay, we're all done. We're toast. Why on earth did he not have Daniel come right away? Why not summon the man who's able to tell him all the interpretations of the dream? Is it for this reason? Perhaps he knew what it meant. Perhaps he knew what that dream meant and he was fearful to hear what Daniel had to say. You see, this time is also different than the first dream. He tells them what the dream is. Wow, those guys must have thought, wow, I'm in it now. Great, he's already told me the dream. I can just spill him a load of rubbish. Even when he tells them the dream, they still don't know what's going on. 
It's like, wow, these are supposed to be your smart people. Not very smart. Okay. So in verse 10 through 16, he tells the dream. There's the tree. It's growing and it's growing and it's growing and it appears, as it were, to reach heaven. And anyone on earth is able to see this tree due to the enormous size of it. Then we read in verse 13 of this watcher or this holy one coming down and he demands that the tree be cut down. Now any of you who follow me on Facebook will know that I had a tree come down. I had a huge limb fall off an oak tree at my house and it took out my barbecue. Okay? Also nearly took out some of my kayaks, but it did take out the roof of my house, which I should probably be more worried about than my barbecue, but... Um, but when that tree fell, wow, what a noise. We literally thought there was a car had come through the side of our house. And then we thought, oh no, Gribbon's sleeping in the room, he's dead. Thankfully, the Lord preserved him. But that tree is cut down. That's no quiet thing. That's huge, okay? The noise of that would be unreal. And when it is cut down, all the leaves are to be stripped off it. It's just to be bare branches. All its fruit is to be taken and scattered. The animals that used it for shelter are, are to run and to go away and they're to fly away. The beautiful tree is to be no more. All of it is to be left as what? An ugly old stump. That beautiful tree is left to this ugly thing that sticks in your ground that you're, everyone who's ever cut down a tree knows that they're so annoying because you can't get rid of them. The stump is nothing in comparison to this beautiful tree. It's to stay out in the field. The beasts that graze there, the dew is to fall upon them. And we read that the very reason is to be taken away. And he's to have the reason of a beast of the field. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is going to stay like this for seven times. What that seven periods mean? You can decipher that yourself, but we do not know. All this is to happen because that angel came down and decreed it. God, God decreed that that tree must be cut down, and it was. 19 to 27 tells us what the dream meant. Daniel, for some weird reason, is reluctant to announce what, he, what he's heard. But he obeys the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And he tells the king what it means. The tree is you. It's like one of those Nathan moments with David. It's you. You're growing. You're becoming mightier every day. Someday, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be cut down. Wow. And you're cut down because of what? Because people don't like you? Because you're getting too powerful? No. It's the decree of God. It's God's will in your life that you will be cut down. See, humiliation comes upon him. In the moment of Nebuchadnezzar's greatest prideful moment, when he stood on top of that rooftop, when he looked out on everything and he saw, man, what a great guy I am. 
his pride was taken from him and he was humiliated from that moment forward. He goes, look, this is great Babylon. This is the thing that I have built for myself so that I can live in luxury, so that I can be this great fellow for doing all these things. You see, a number of months had passed since Daniel had told him that interpretation. It just wasn't the very next day. There was a few months between that. And what does he do as normally he does? He forgets things. But this time, he would never forget. Just as he stood on that rooftop and he proclaimed that he was this great guy, the voice of God fell upon him. And in that very hour, the great king of Babylon became quite mad. And he was driven from men and he ate grass. Anyone ever eaten grass? I have. As a kid, I ate weird things as a child. But it wasn't the thing that sustained me for a period of time. The grass that Nebuchadnezzar ate kept him alive. So go a week and just eat grass. And I'll come next week and see how you are. You won't be looking so good. Please don't do it, children. Okay, Eat the food your mommy and daddy make for you. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar ate the grass. That wasn't the only thing. He became hairy. Okay. Some people in this congregation are trying to grow a beard. Yep. I follow you guys on Facebook. I know about you. Ah, well, catch me out. And he's not even here. Darn, he's moved. He's right beside me at the back. But no matter, I try to grow a beard. doesn't work all that well. I get these patches of baldness. It's okay. But Nebuchadnezzar grew hair so much that what did it do? Trailed on the ground. Wow. It wasn't just one or two wee hairs that grew. He become oh, hairy and ugly. Okay? Let's just not beat about the bush. The hair became like that of feathers of an eagle. You ever seen an eagle? Okay, what are his feathers like? Big and broad and long. That's what his hair was like. And not only to mention that, but his nails became that of a bird. Any of you who have boys know that nails really do our heads in. Why? Because they never cut them and they're always dirty. Okay, same thing here for Nebuchadnezzar. His nails became that of a bird. Ever see a bird with a claw? It's like, Rawr. that's how long his nails were. Imagine one day you're standing and you're looking over this great province and you're going, wow, look how great I am. And boom, within a short time, you're this hairy, ugly looking thing with big long nails and you're eating grass. This happened. God struck this proud king this arrogant king, and he made him that of an animal. The most powerful man in all of the world, the Lord reduced to this state, as it were, of punishment for his pride and his arrogance and his only wanting to self, self, self. His courtiers, as it were, drove that man out. Who, the, who is this dude? They probably looked at him and thought, you're not Nebuchadnezzar. Who the heck are you? Get out of here. They watched him perhaps as he were rolling around the field. 
Remember, he acted like an animal. He's not a human. God did this. He took that proud, arrogant man and he made him roll in the grass like an animal. And he looked wet. Why? Because the dew came upon him. If you were in that palace and you saw your ruler rolling around in, in the grass with big long nails, what would you have thought? Scared, I heard that. Yep, good. I'd have been scared too, thinking, wow, what on earth happened to him? But in all this madness, there is true kindness. Remember that. In all of this madness, God in his faithfulness and in his kindness restored Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him his reason back. He gave him his kingdom back. He restored the king back to a man. And he restored him back. Why? Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, pride, he is able to humble. You see, God did it. God took Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel 1 and all the way through to chapter 4 and he made him his own. God, the divine one, was able to do it. Nothing in us. You see, God did it not by boasting the man up. He didn't make him more prideful. He didn't give him more kingdoms. He didn't give him more people. You see, he knocked him down. That's how God converts people, is it not? One day the king in his all his splendor, and the next he's munching on grass like the beast of a field. But then after a period of time, he begins to realize something. You see, truths that he had seen and that he had heard in Daniel 1 through 4 now come flooding into his mind. Things that he should have grasped at the time, he didn't. He forgot. He suppressed. He kept pushing it away. He wanted nothing to do with it. These things come flooding back into his mind. And he realizes that the God is the one true and living God. His God. Does this mind you of something? We just prayed a few moments ago for the work that goes on in those back rooms in our Sunday school. And I hope you pray every week. And I hope you pray every day for the work of the Sunday school in this place. You fathers... It's Father's Day. What gifts are you giving your children? Are you teaching them how to wash a car? Good. Are you teaching them how to be respectful to ladies and young women? Good. Are you teaching them how to be men in a day when men, as it were, are made out to be fairies and soft Men should be men and not be fearful of it. Good. But are you teaching them of Christ? 
It's Father's Day. Do you need to be a father? Do you need to go to the father of fathers and seek forgiveness? I might get in trouble, but oh well. might never be brought back. I know I'm getting a lunch after this, so it's all good. But there's maybe. Wow. And the audience responds. Do you have a problem like we have in our church and in the church that I came from where it's ladies who are in the back teaching the children? Ponder that one. I know there's one male teacher back there because he already told me. That thrilled my heart so much. Are we doing family worship? Are we teaching our children of Christ, men? Or sadly, are we leaving it to our women? It's so important. You see, that's why these things are important. That's why what goes on in those back rooms it's of vital importance. It's not so you can have a free hour and listen to the service, although you should be and having your soul fed. But your children are being taught the true word of God back there. In your living rooms, are you turning off your Netflix? Are you turning off your Amazon Prime? And hey, look, if my wife come out now, she would tell you he doesn't do it all the time either. So I'm in this with you. Family worship. It needs to happen. Teaching our children needs to happen, and it needs to happen by us men, not always left to the woman. You see, Eric stands up here each and every Lord's Day and preaches and teaches to you, and he's so faithful at doing it. Are you thankful for it? You see, we preach and we study and we preach and it's study and it seems as if there's no fruit and it seems as if no one's been saved. I'm a Sunday school teacher at, back in IBC. No one's got converted out of my class. Does it stop me from doing it? No. It pushes me on further. When I read Daniel chapter 4 and I see what the work of God can do in someone's life, know what it does? It tells me, who cares if no one gets converted under me? Teach it anyway. They have to know these things. We need to be about our Father's work. Whether we see proof of it or not, we need to keep going. Can I urge you, please, please, as a Sunday school teacher, pray for those saints in that room. They sacrifice for you. Thank them. Doesn't take much to say, hey, thanks for teaching my kids. Even though they might turn around and say, your kids have been climbing the walls, you need to go home and talk to them. Take it on the chin and say, you know what? Thanks anyway. But persevere on. God took Nebuchadnezzar and he didn't lift him up. He cut the feet from him. He brought him down. He knocked him down. But he didn't just leave him there. He had him look to heaven. So what can we learn from all of this? Never despair. 
you thought I was going to talk about pride. You've had enough. Go deal with it. Now we're going to talk about not being a despairing people. Many of us here this morning, if we're being honest, we despair. Perhaps someone we know and love is not converted. We should never despair. We should never despair of the conversion of anyone. Why? Who would have thought that the most powerful king in all of the world who took God's people captive, who pressurized God's people to remain in idolatry, would one day himself be in fellowship with that great God? It was a total pagan God that exiled the people. How on earth could the man who took God's people become one of God's people himself? But with God, nothing is impossible. Parents, grandparents, perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you're downcast because some of your children are not believers. Some of your grandchildren are not believers. It's already starting to freak me out about my kids and their souls and their eternal state. But then I read a chapter like Daniel 4 and it brings peace and it brings comfort. Why? Because with God, nothing is impossible. We think that if we bring them each Lord's Day and they hear the gospel, well, listen, surely that's got to be enough. If we teach them every night in our homes like we should be, surely that's got to be enough. If we as parents live lives that are true and faithful, but remind you they're not perfect. And make sure your kids know that you're a sinner too. Don't try to act this holy life and as if, you know, you sin, you don't ever sin. Confess your sins to your kids. Perhaps we think if we do that, well, surely if we do all these things, we're going to be Christians. Can I remind you of one person's life? And I'm sure some of you can testify the same. His name is Merv Campbell. Yep, me. I was brought up in a Christian home. I was brought up with parents who believed God. I was taken to church each and every week. I had a father who faithfully led us as he best he could in family worship. And let me tell you, with all those things, little Mervyn ain't no believer. I heard the gospel over and over and over again. You know what I did? I did a Nebuchadnezzar. I suppressed it and I pushed it and I hid it away. Until one Sunday morning, our faithful pastor, Robert Briggs, as he normally does, preached the gospel with fire and brimstone. And as I sat in that fourth seat over in the front row in that church in Macrofeld, God opened my heart. What made that time so special? It was God's time. It was in the time of God and in His mercy and as His kindness that He was going to save my soul. Many, many times I'd been taken to missions. I'd been taken to every gospel event there was. Was I a believer? No. What made that Sunday? A regular Sunday? Nothing special about it. It was God's time. It wasn't my parents' time. He would always press and press. It was His time. Parents, don't lose heart. Please don't lose heart. Keep praying for your kids. Grandparents, 
get on your knees, as sore as it may be in your older age, pray for them. Fathers, it is your duty to bring them to church. It is your duty to lead them in family worship. It is your duty if you have a beautiful wife and you've made kids, it's your duty to nurture that whole family. But what isn't your job is to save them. That's God's. But you have a responsibility. Rest on that for a second. You can't save your kids. God can. What are you doing about it? While Nebuchadnezzar's God remains God, we should never despair of the conversion of anybody. How often, how often are we not tempted to throw in the towel? And we, we question God. Can He even save this person? Shame on us. God can save Nebuchadnezzar. He can save the worst drug addict in that street like that. But yet how often we snub our nose. How often when we see homeless people on the street, we walk to the other side. How often when we see the crackheads on the street, we don't go near them. What different are they to you than to me? Nothing. They're an image in the sight of God. And they have a soul that will perish unless they hear the gospel. If God can crack Nebuchadnezzar, who's too difficult? No one. He has done. God has done what seemed impossible. Where? In you. If you're sitting there this morning and you believe in God as your Lord and Savior, God has done that work in you. Were you perfect? No way. You all look perfect now. You all dress smart. You all look pretty good. But you had a soul and a heart that was sinful towards God. And God in His kindness saved you. God broke you. God drew you onto Himself. And He can do it with your loved ones as well. But I asked this question, and as it's true Irish, do you even care? Do you even care about the loss that are around you? When was the last time we wept sore? And I don't mean just a tear. I mean sobbing for some of the lost in our family. When was the last time I, Merv Campbell, lost a night's sleep for my own grandmother, who's not a believer? For my uncles and aunts who aren't believers? For my cousin? For my very own children? You see... We should be so concerned about the people who don't know Christ that we should be on our knees yearning for their salvation. Don't give up. Don't throw in that towel. You see, we can't do it. But He can. But there's some here this morning and you have no hope. You've got no hope whatsoever. Why? Why? Because you're like Nebuchadnezzar in 1 to 3. You keep hearing that voice of God unless you're putting on earplugs. And yet it's quiet. 
and it's still and you hear nothing. You still think too highly of yourself. What will it take you to get to that place where Nebuchadnezzar got? What will it take us to bring to the place where we will bring freely the honor and the glory that is due his name? We just read that God took a king and made him an animal. But what will he do with you? What will God do with you when you keep rejecting his invitation and his warnings? There was a famous singer, and with this I'll close. There was a famous singer by the name of Charlotte Elliott. And it took the direct confrontation of a minister right in her face to bring her to her sense. You see, in London long ago, there was a huge concert. Okay? And among the many guests that were invited to this lady's concert was a preacher. When the show was over, normally the famous person, as they do, would bring people in and talk to them and blah, 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 and shake her hand. And everyone would say, oh, how great you are. You're wonderful. Your voice is amazing. But when the preacher approached this woman, he said this. I thought as I listened to you tonight, how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if your talents were dedicated to his cause. Imagine going to Vegas and meeting Celine Dion and saying that to her. I like Celine Dion. Please don't judge me on that, okay? He went on to say this, You know, young lady, you're a sinner in the sight of a holy God. But I am glad to tell you tonight, Charlotte, that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from all sin. That blood and body that you guys are about to partake in can cleanse you from all of your sin. What do you think she did? She got angry. She stomped her feet. And she walked away. Gospel was right there. She stomped her foot at it. That's not the end of the story. As she was going, the preacher, as she turned her heel and she went to walk out that door over there, he says, I mean you no harm, and I mean you no offense. I will pray that God's Spirit will convict you. God's Spirit will convict you. When that young lady got home, she got on her bed and she tried to sleep. You know what happened? She tossed and she turned and she tossed and she turned. The preacher's face and his words kept coming, coming back to her mind. Her sleep was disturbed. She was terribly convicted of her sins. And about two o'clock in the morning, that famous singer got out of her bed. She got a pen and a piece of paper. And with tears running down her face, she wrote these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that the blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. God used that woman 
more than she will ever know. We have a tradition in Northern Ireland that when people get baptized, this is the hymn that we sing. Little Preacher Milan was his name, was bold, and he approached her, and he told her that the blood and the body of Christ can cleanse her from all of her sins. The body and the blood of Christ can, 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 yeah, can cleanse you from all of your sin. For some it has, for some it has not. This morning, will you stamp your feet? Will you huff? Big Merv, I hate when that Irishman comes. He's too direct. I don't like him. I don't care if you don't like me or not. If you become a believer, it's all I care about. Are you going to stamp your feet? Are you going to, as it were, stand on your feet and shit out your chest and say, I want nothing to do with this God that you talk about? Well, let me tell you this. I pray that God's Spirit will convict you. You see, just as I am without one plea is what all of us will say when we reach heaven, when God returns not to save us, but to judge us. We will stand there alone. We will stand there by ourselves. You see, for this young woman, it took a bold witness. For others, it can take a more drastic measure. We can be made an animal. But what will it take in your life before you're converted? What will it take in your life before you give it all to God? Remember the verse. What shall it profit a man or a woman or a boy or a girl if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Will you not take out the name of Nebuchadnezzar from that final verse and make that your confession of faith this morning? Now I fill in the blank. Praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven for all His works. All His works are right. All His ways are just. But remember those last few verses or words. Those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Amen. Let's pray to God. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you that it does convict us of our sins. It shows that we indeed are a prideful people in these days, but that you're a God who convicts us of our pride and helps us through these things. And we pray that we would, if we are prideful in these days, that we indeed would confess our sins to you. That you, dear Lord, would humble us. That you would show us that we need to be a humble people in these days. Help us to extol your name just as Nebuchadnezzar did. But we pray this morning, dear Lord, that for some who know you not, that as they see the wonder of the cross, as they see Christ 
And as they see even this communion service that is about to take place, that they would ask themselves, what must I do to be saved? Dear Lord, open their eyes and their ears. Help them to see and help them to hear the good news of the gospel. Help them to see that you indeed are the God who can take the proud and make us humble. Dear Lord, we ask that you would bless the rest of our day and whatever we would do, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.